Thank you for listening to Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti, recorded live at the Sat Yoga Ashram in Costa Rica. To join us for a life-changing meditation retreat, or to make a donation to support this transformational work, please visit our website, www.satyoga.org. To access more teachings or guided meditations from Shunyamurti, please visit the members section of our website or our YouTube channel, Sat Yoga Institute. Namaste. The light. The light. <laughs> this film is for the dark, not the light. This film is for the darkness in you. Be careful, you're sitting very close. <laughs> Tonight we're seeing a documentary film. <laughs> a typical boring documentary of moving heads. Some move from one body to another. <laughs> this is the documentary that crystallizes and explains the collapse of the human male ego. <laughs> it won't be any news to any of you. I have, alas, been forced as a function of my duties here to do research over the last couple of weeks of horror films. You can imagine how horrible it has been. <laughs> but it has enabled me to formulate a theory of horror films and why they have been created and are becoming or have become ever since at least the 30s so popular. And so, <clears throat> What I want you to understand, which I have learned, is first of all that every film, but especially a horror film, must be understood and perceived as a dream. Your dream. And as a dream, a film mixes together the unconscious, the subconscious, let's put it that way, of the ego with the conscious and the superconscious, but in a chaotic brew that hides the very truths that it reveals. Because the truths that it reveals but hides to most audiences are too horrible 
for them to take. And so the apparent horror of the film is actually what soothes the filmgoer, who doesn't have to take in the real horror because they can look at it only from the imaginary register of consciousness and not have to recognize its symbolic accusations and insights into the horror that is going on already within the soul of every spectator. Now interestingly, in the year 1931, two horror films were made by the same production company. The first one was Dracula by, with Bela Lugosi. The second one was Frankenstein with Boris Karloff playing the monster. <clears throat> now when I first uh, thought of these two films, I assumed for sure Frankenstein would have been first, but no, Dracula was made first, and only then it became a hit did they look for another horror film to follow up with, and, uh, and they came up with Frankenstein. But I believe that psychologically speaking, Frankenstein is first. And I want to explain that to you a bit tonight. Because if you enjoy this film, God forbid, I'll show you Dracula tomorrow. <laughs> and the difference between the two films, and it's a very important difference, is that in Frankenstein, the monster is the one who suffers. In Dracula, there is no suffering. It's a horror film without suffering. The victims do not suffer. They are taken into a state beyond suffering. In Frankenstein, however, there is agony, there is fear. And so what we must understand is what is the nature of the fear that provides the true response of horror and dread in the audience, which is not what is portrayed on the screen, but which can only be seen between the lines between the images, within the projected content and that which is introjected. So to go back to the superficial plot line of Frankenstein, how many have seen the original 1931 version? Oh, not that many, really. Are you kidding? That's all? You are all Franken virgins? <laughs> oh, the book. Well, that's a whole different story. This is nothing like the book, which is written by a woman, interestingly, which is a very important point. But what I would say as a general theme is this. 
the horror films that were made in the 30s, and that includes Jekyll and Hyde. Let's remember that one, which we've seen here. Most of us have, I know, seen that one. What these films are explaining is the collapse of the male ego and the beginning of the overt revelation of the il n'y a pas de rapport sexuel. The films are about the impossibility of a loveful relationship between man and woman and the collapse of the ability of the man to meet the woman at her level. He no longer has the psychological wherewithal to encounter a woman with the, the difference that female psychology is and be able to contain and survive and satisfy her. And he can no longer handle her power. Because remember, the woman in this time, by the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century, was freed from the medieval position that woman was put in as the one who obeys, as the one who is subservient, and the feminist movement was already in full swing, right? We remember uh, Mary Poppins already, which is a horror film of its own sort. <laughs> That's too horrible to show you. So we have a man either choosing to run away and not be able to relate to the woman or to become monstrous, to attempt to dominate her through creating a persona that is more bestial, that is more focused on body parts than it is on the mind and the heart of the woman. So here we have a situation a man who happens to be the son of the richest man in town, who can order the Burgermeister around, and that's something, the Baron von Frankenstein, and his son has been studying at medical school, but rather than become a doctor, he goes rogue. And at the moment when he is set up to have his marriage, with this very strong woman, very feminist, very assertive woman, he runs away and holds up in his little castle on the mountain and cannot be found. So immediately what you see is at the moment that they are scheduled to come together as man and wife, he cannot handle it. He splits, literally, psychologically splits from man into a self-created, monstrous alter ego. Because it's only from the place of his alter ego does he feel that he has the strength to encounter and dominate this woman.
So, we have in the beginning this man with his sidekick, Fritz. It's not Igor here, and, and it's not Victor, it's Henry Frankenstein. It's very interesting. The names morph in different uh, remakes. But in any case, here is his alter ego, who is the hunchback, right? Who is representing that part of him that uh, cannot even get an erection. He cannot uh, relate to this woman in a, a sense of power that can also be loving. And so he, he enters into the ghoulish activity of grave robbing with his sidekick. And they find dead men, it's men, who they try to put together, he tries to put together into being a living corpse who will be able to handle this woman. And so his interest in death and in, you could say, an anesthetized body, a body that isn't going to feel the emotional hits that he is going to face dealing with the woman's, not only her obsessive and dominating elements, but her hysterical elements, and those elements of her conscious capacity for discernment that will see through the falseness of his male ego. And its weakness. And so, he goes into his castle, he creates his monstrous alter ego, and by the way, and he has to lift it up, you see this wonderful scene where the corpse is raised to the roof, which is kind of like the spire of a church, and God is called upon to bring down the lightning that will bring it to life. But the laboratory itself is filled with all of these uh, electric uh, beams which are actually created by Tesla coils. This is Nikola Tesla's laboratory that's being used. It's very interesting. So the whole understanding of electricity that is now coming into the world that will revolutionize, has already begun to revolutionize the world, is that power that the male ego has used to compensate its inability to relate to the woman. And therefore, the mode of activity will become the mode of conflict, the mode of homoerotic relationship of a kind that is known quaintly as war in which women are excluded except as victims and who can be raped in war, who can be defiled. But war is for men, you see. So the male ego is trying to prove itself. So we have, we've just finished World War I, we're about to enter World War II. And what we're seeing here is the inevitability of war because love is no longer possible. And so this monster is created and he, Frankenstein the doctor, admits 
in that scene where the, the woman and uh, uh, the doctor who runs the laboratory that the brain had been stolen from, the brain of a criminal, by the way, because the ordinary brain was dropped by Fritz and wasn't uh, use, usable. He, he admits in front of her his envy of her ability to bear children. He has womb envy. And he says, I have now created life. Who needs her? I don't have to get her pregnant. I have created life myself. I know what it feels like to be God. <laughs> this is the issue. He, he can deceive himself in feeling godlike because he no longer needs the woman. And he's compensating for the neediness at the core of the child male ego for the mother by adhering instead to his illusory power as a scientific creator of powers far greater than that of the woman. The power which is ultimately not to create life, but only to destroy it. <clears throat> and so he discovers after the experiment has been completed and the monster has come to life that indeed it was the criminal brain, not the ordinary, normal, quote-unquote, brain that was stolen. And he realizes that his experiment has gone badly awry. Because now, how does he control this alter ego that he has created? when it's quite clear that he will not be able to live a, a, a normal life. He will not be able to be a normal gentleman any longer. And so he tries to chain up the monster. He tries to repress the monstrous male attempt at trying to feel superpower. And he temporarily gets it under control, but naturally the repressed will return and escape. And so indeed the monster escapes. He cannot avoid this repressed energy of destructiveness and mad attempts to dominate, to come out into the public awareness, into the awareness of the other. Now interestingly, the monster, because it is the male child ego that has created a fantasy of being powerful, so that it could overcome the mother in its fantasy and overcome the paternal laws and overcome the situation of feeling helpless and powerless. The monster is actually innocent, and after he escapes, he finds this young girl, child, 
and he plays with her with flowers and very has a very innocent game. So you see that even this monster is not criminal, is actually when he is in his own habitat, his own element, and not being or feeling attacked, he can handle a child woman, but he can't handle an adult woman. But then even with this child woman, he, then he doesn't know his own force, and he throws her into the lake beside which they're playing together, not realizing that, in fact, he's killing her, he's drowning her. And so again, we see the ilnyapa, not by uh, an act of sadistic enjoyment of killing, but of his own inability to relate and to understand the other and the limitations of the other. So the ilnyapa doesn't work either at the level of the innocence or at the level of the deliberate torment and the deliberate attempt to fight or flight uh, approach to the woman. So in any case, <clears throat> he comes back and they have no choice but to go through with the marriage because the father intervenes and says, Get, go through with it, boy. You can't hide up here in the hills any longer. You, you've got to do your duty and bring a grandson to the Frankenstein lineage, right? This is the purpose of marriage, after all. You have to get her pregnant and, and bring a, a new son to the family. That's the whole point. The marriage isn't about you and your happiness. The marriage has a social function here for the family system. And so he attempts to go through with the marriage, but his alter ego, the monster, enters into the home and he cannot keep it out. He cannot keep his repressed, monstrous unconscious from interfering with the attempt at completing the wedding. And his conscious mind, in order to protect his bride, locks her in her room as if she's a child who can't defend herself and needs to be treated uh, as if she has no free will or has no right to move in and out on her own. He, he takes the role of the parent and treats her as a child. And of course, locked in her room, that's when the monster crawls through the window and attacks her. And she can't get out because his conscious mind has locked her in. So it's this moment when he attempts to have a relationship with his future wife. And of course, it's a monstrous failure. But the woman is not destroyed by it. She survives it, and it's the monster who runs away. He has to flee. And so we see the complete collapse and inability for this man to get his own psychological nature into a unified, adult, loving, and strong mode of being. He is now out of his element and the monstrous part of him now runs wild, and the whole town has to be uh, 
brought together into a, a posse in order to capture the monster. As you probably know, the monster, I'm, I'm spoiling the film for you all, but I think I need to do this so that you can see this as the dream it is. The final burning, I think this is the original burning man ceremony. Uh, the, the monster has to burn in this wooden windmill. Again, we have an echo of Don Quixote, etc. But he has to burn. And he is not happy about it. The monster is very frightened himself. The monster is not all that monstrous, you see. And he is helpless. He can't communicate. He, he, is, he is silent, but he is, uh, he is totally fearful. His, his strength and his uh, apparently monstrous ability is only an image. And inside of that image, there, there is only terror. So it, it is the monster himself who is the one who feels the terror in the film, not the other. Just as every male ego feels terror upon confronting the possibility of a relationship with a woman and cannot either carry it through or feels inadequate or impotent or in some way having to put up a false front or having to uh, relate uh, with some compensatory persona or has to dominate and, and the, make sure that the woman is, uh, is kept from uh, being able to, to reach him. And so the question is really from the woman's perspective now, because the woman who's going to marry him has another man by her side, whose name is Victor, and he is seemingly the real adult gentleman who would have been the proper husband for this woman, and she's not interested in him. And so the other question is, why is it that the female wants to be with the inadequate man who can only create a monstrous alter ego but cannot be there at a level of human relationality in which there is equality, which this other man would have provided, and she has absolutely no erotic interest in it. And so the, I would have to say that what the woman wants then is a man who is not either afraid of her or not her equal, because if so, she will end up being either disgusted with him or uh, there will be a power struggle that will be a stalemate and a cold war, or there will simply be no uh, erotic fantasy possible because it will all be too down-to-earth and uh, more of a business negotiation than it will be a romance. And so what we see here is the collapse of the possibility of romanticism to be able to function as the thread of a human relationship in a marriage. And rather than that, we see that the woman would prefer to be battered by a, a monstrous man who can sexually dominate her because at least her own ego will be able to feel she's with someone who's not afraid of her and someone who she can't dominate. 
so that she can at least feel contained and that she has brought out the beast in him that makes her feel irresistible because he has been unable to contain his own lust to such a degree that this monstrous, the, the Hyde character versus the Jekyll, uh, is released by her own erotic power. And so we see the two sides of these fantasies then collide in creating the impossibility for love to survive in a capitalist cutthroat world where neither the man nor the woman is any longer an oasis of love, where both parties have now become phallicized, have become male egos, and the female male ego is superior to the male male ego because the female does not have any of the fears of performance anxiety that the male has. And her body, being the object of desire, gives her a double capacity for dominance, but also, therefore, an inability to honor and obey, or even to desire. And so we see the death of love, the death of desire, and the death of the human capacity to carry on a life within a soulful level of consciousness. Because both have now fallen into the chakra three, and below that, the, the very violent versions of chakra two, and the ultimate needy child of chakra one who will be killed, who will be molested and defiled. And the relationship with its inability for a meeting of hearts has lost its capacity to function as a true attractor that creates a whole out of two parts. So what I think this film is, is a tragedy, even though you may find it to be more of a comedy, because we have gone so far since the 30s, and horror films now are no longer about this problem, which I would put within the neurotic uh, spectrum of consciousness. Now the horror films are, are psychotic and they're, they're no longer even about this particular theme of, of the Il Nya Pa because that was a given long ago. Now there's an Il Nya Pa at, an either, at another level in which the ego itself uh, internally, let alone relating to the other, can no longer hold itself together. So the morphing and the collapse and the, uh, the, the coming apart of the fragments and threads of human consciousness at all of its various levels uh, has, has made it an impossibility for the ego to have any coherence within itself. 
<clears throat> However, before I end this way too overlong introduction, <coughs> I want to say that the film, as a dream, needs to be seen not only as expressing the subconscious, but also the superconscious, and that the solution to this problem is very clear. As he says in that moment in the, in, in the film where he is explaining that he feels, he knows what it feels like to be God, you see, if he really did attain God consciousness, he would be able to relate to the woman. There would be able to be a relationship, but it would be a relationship of the oneself. It would be a relationship in non-duality. And rather than be monstrous, there would be an expression of divine love that would enable a, a new world to be born from this chaos and a new harmony in the town and in the, uh, the, the external environment at large. So the, the problem is that the ego can only have a concept of God as the dominant uh, evil superego, it cannot have an understanding of God any longer as intelligent, loving, creative power to hold and to transform and to redream. That creative intelligence has already been cut off by the ego's materialistic focus on the body and not on the spirit. And so I hope that we are able to see this film from the perspective of those who have passed beyond this level of the Ilnyapa, who have entered into the truth of the inherent relationship that we have to the self, in which the monstrous ego can burn itself, not be burned by the other, but can burn itself in the fire of sacrifice so that divine love can destroy the monstrousness of the current ego world and bring about a divine transfiguration to our true nature. But for this, the ego must die and the real self must come. Alive. It's alive! It's alive! <laughs> but it's only alive when your ego is dead. I hope you enjoy this film but in the right way. And I hope you don't see yourself in it. <laughs> but if you do, burn, baby, burn. <laughs> Namaste. Do you have any questions or yes. comments? Yes. You were going to mention about Mary Shelley. Why do you think a woman wrote this? Well, yes, I think a man couldn't write about the collapse of the male ego. 
I think it required uh, someone, and remember her husband was a romantic poet, right? And so she was in effect showing the shadow of the romanticism that he could not express. So I think the truth had to come through the other who could view it objectively and say, this isn't working, my dear. And uh, no matter how lovely your poems are, real life is not like that. Yes? Do you think the writers and the directors of this film were conscious of what you're... When they made it, they were thinking of this? That's a good question. Or it just was a part of the culture that were just ha was happening? I think that there was some consciousness of it, but probably not formulated the way I did it. Mm -hmm. So, when you were referring like, to the world wars, so in a way that's kind of like a, a strategy to not deal with the actual problem of, um, of that integration. Right? Well, it was the problem writ large. It became a pandemic. I think that's what brought Nazism into play, and as well as the American fascistic and the British and uh, all, all of that uh, conflagration in Europe was the result of the collapse of the medieval, the feudal relationships in which the, the role of man and woman was determined by that social order. That order had collapsed because of the, uh, the collapse of the aristocracy, who could no longer play the role of royalty. And therefore, the divine right of kings was obviously now uh, annihilated. It was, it was corrupt and, and uh, destructive. And so what is it that gives order? There's no longer God the Father any longer, you see. And the, the, the baron is not a real father. He's a kind of joke. Uh, that he wants to carry on the tradition of the patriarchy, but he hasn't got any strength to do that. And that's why the son, in a way, has already you know, transgressed all the laws, because they were meaningless anyway. They, they, they no longer were worth following. So uh, only rebellion and violence and nihilism could result from the, the collapse of the, the last order that was uh, loyal to the highest values possible for the human consciousness, which is what God represents. And once that was, uh, was gone and we had a world of uh, atheists and materialists and Darwinists and, and uh, all of that, then, then only a, uh, a dominance based on military force uh, could, uh, could survive. There was no longer any moral center to the world. And so war was, uh, was the result. And now we're in, in the final stages of that when, when it, it will be a total destruction, not simply a war that nations will be able to survive, but one which destroys the last vestige of the monstrous ego. <clears throat> but again, to go back to this duality of Frankenstein and Dracula, which if you want to see it tomorrow, if you're that masochistic, we'll show that one. Uh, in, the, in the Dracula film, it's over already. You know, Dracula is already dead. He's out of it. Uh, he can be in a relationship with a woman because he is going to vampirically, you know, suck her life energy and her blood, but he doesn't care. Now he can handle her because he's dead to her. He's not in the relationship anymore. And the only way the woman can be with the man is to agree 
to, uh, to become a vampire herself. And so now you have zombies, because the vampire is, is already a zombie, is dead, right? And, and so this, uh, this, this feeling of being the undead, uh, those who are alive, but their soul is gone. They're living a robotic, superficial life with no feelings anymore. They're consumerists. They're, they're, there's no longer any depth or soul or, or even uh, human feeling from the heart that's gone. And those people can continue, but only by being vampires. And the system itself is vampiric. This is what colonialism, imperialism, all of this is about. It's, uh, it's the robber barons. It's, you take what you can. Uh, there's no love, there's no sharing, there's, there's no uh, humanity left in the, in the human soul or the human society. So uh, the, the Dracula level is, is, is already, Dracula is not, is not going to suffer over this, and no one suffers because they've already come to that conclusion that uh, it's, it's over. The, the world has already ended in the 30s, and that's why the 20th century is just a century of one war after the other, which will soon climax in the final war of the series. But, uh, and it had to wait until the destructive power was sufficient to end it all and, and take the world out of its vampiric misery. But the, uh, the, the Dracula state was already a state in which the, uh, even though the, 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 the monster Dracula could finally be killed uh, with a stake you know, through his heart, but he didn't suffer over it. He was already gone anyway. He didn't care if he lived or died. And, and we have uh, people in that state. They are so identified with the lower death drive that there's no uh, interest in life, and they'll wear suicide vests, and they would rather die uh, in a murder-suicide situation than, than live in a situation of uh, an attempt to be loving. So the ego has already uh, lost that last vestige of hope that, that uh, love would be possible. Okay, and then if we, if we want to go and see some of the more recent horror films, which we could do, we will see how the situation has evolved into a much worse one than is described in the, in the 30s. But, uh, but this is already the prediction of the end. And uh, so uh, it's, it was known. I mean, this was out in the public. Whether people could interpret the dream or not in a conscious formulated way, they knew it. The, the, the mind, uh, the heart knows even when the mind can't uh, organize it into a, uh, a direct uh, argument or, uh, or insight, but it's felt. So that's why war was, uh, was permitted and encouraged as the only way that uh, we could relate to the other. And that, that is true at the level of international relations and of, uh, of the relation of a couple or parents and children, whatever. It was war at all levels between humans. Okay? Yes? Yeah, I haven't seen this version, but as I understand it, it's very much more like Hollywood. It doesn't keep to the, the novel at all. Right? Mm. 
Yeah. And I'm curious as to why do you think that that was? Like, why do you think they made that choice? To <clears throat> well, it had the novel was already obsolete. This was already what almost a hundred years later, and uh, so the the human psyche had already degraded even beyond what it had been in the Romantic period. So it, it couldn't have been true to that and still had an audience. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti podcast. For more information on programs and retreats, click on the calendar section of our website, www.satyoga.org. Our work is made possible by the generous support of our listeners, viewers, and members. To make a donation, please visit the donate page of our website. We thank you for your support in our mission to share this timeless wisdom with the world. Namaste.